You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. All right. I think I know everyone this morning, which is lovely. It just makes it a little bit easier when we're having a kind of a odd day. But I'm Brittany, in case for some reason we haven't met. And I'm really excited that you're joining us. We're going to finish up the book of Psalms today, sort of. Miss Suzanne is going to do a, mes- a message next week that's a little bit more interactive. There's going to be some creating, some opportunities for you to um, put yourselves into the Psalms and really practice that kind of intimacy, that kind of rawness, that kind of communicating with God. And some of you may be already doing that, and that's fantastic. But for others, you new, and so we want to take an opportunity to kind of do a coach session of that. So for me today, what I'm going to do is finish up with books four and five. Remember, if you didn't get the Bible Project picture, there's extras out on the front desk. But the book of Psalms is essentially divided into five books. So if you're reading through your Bible, you'll see little headings as you're going through. Miss Perla did verses or chapters one to three, books one to three last week. I'm going to do books four and five. But before we do that, I want to ask a couple questions, get us thinking this morning. Um, I was reading through these parts of Psalms, and I was thinking how significant place is when it comes to forming a friendship. And it doesn't always have to be a physical place, because obviously sometimes we have pen pals. I had a pen pal when I was in middle school. And sometimes we have phone conversations, and I mean, Jim and Elvie, you guys are apart a lot. So much of your place is the phone. It's, it's that It's not that it has to be a literal area as much as it's the intentional carving out of time to connect with another person, saying, I am going to give you the resource of myself, my time, my energy, my attention to be intentionally with you, connecting with you. And if we don't do that, it's going to be really hard for us to form relationships. I put three pictures up of some of my favorite people to spend time with. Um, The first is... Well, it depends, I guess, on where you're looking, but I'll just go the way I see it. One of these pictures is from Johanna and I when we used to take these adventures to all of these random places, and we found all these tiny little serving things across the capital region, tiny sugar cubes, tiny cream thing, and it just really tickled us, and so I took pictures of it as we went. The other one on the top is Bo. We have a a history or a tradition of having mommy bow dates. And usually we go to the library and Dunkin' Donuts. That's like our two favorite places to go together. Coffee, sugar, books. All, you know, how, what, what can you not love about that? Um, but this was the first time that he and I went to Friendly's and he was just delighted to have that time. We did that right before the baby came. And the one on the bottom is Tim and I on a family vacation with all of our family. And our children were absolutely not sleeping. And so we were supposed to be able to like go out and have a date that night. The date was in the hallway on the floor outside of the hotel room because the boy, we had the baby monitor with us. The boys were inside and like my in-laws were going to watch them. It wasn't happening. But the reality is each of those moments was just setting aside intentional time to be with people that we love because without that, We can't grow, we can't know them, we can't relate with them. It's just impossible. And so where are some of your favorite places to meet with friends or people that you love? The living room. Yeah, it doesn't have to be fancy, right, Terry? That's perfect. The kitchen. Mm, Yum. (laughs) Coffee. Yeah, absolutely. Place relaxing. Yeah. All right. Well, those are good spots. Now we know where to go. If you want to eat well, go to Miss Katz's. Um, 
like I said, one of my favorite ones is the library and Dunkin' Donuts with Bo. Those are some spots that are sacred to us. Bob's Diner, yes. Here's another one. Where is your favorite place to meet with God? The kitchen, anywhere. The living room? Prayer room, yeah. The woods, in the car. I remember that when Joe used to drive. What'd you say? At church, yeah. Thank you, Logan. I enjoy meeting with him. This is so indicative of the stage that we're at. The only place that's quiet in my house is the bathroom. <laughs> I like lock myself in there. I'll be out in 10 minutes. What are you doing, Mom? I just need some time to myself, please. Um, but, you know, God is, God is everywhere, like you said, Barb. And it's really important for us to have that place that we go to with him, that intentional spot that we carve out where we know I'm going here, I'm giving you my attention, I'm giving you my intentions, I just want to be with you, wherever that is. And it doesn't have to look the same. It can be something that moves the course of the day where, you know, one morning it's, it's around coffee and then, and then later in the afternoon maybe it's at your cubicle at work. Yeah, it can be anywhere because God is everywhere. But for... Oh, yeah. Nature... Yeah, it is. And it's important, though, that we carve out those spots where, it's where we know that we can go and meet with God. And for Israel, that place was the temple, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. But in 586 B.C., the place that they knew where they could go to meet with God consistently was actually destroyed. This is a picture of it, a re-digitally re put together picture of it. Um, and so when the temple was destroyed by Babylon and the city was destroyed by Babylon and they were carried off into exile, the place that they knew where to go to meet with God was just gone. And when they returned home in 538 BC, the people that returned were tasked with rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city walls and putting things back together, if you will, so that life could return to what they thought would be normal. And yet it was a lot harder than they thought. There was a lot of external oppression. There was internal disorganization. And it began to feel hopeless and purposeless. And this is never going to get us to the place that we want to be. And so left without a way to formally interact with God and feeling all of these emotions, the people who returned from exile just sat and wondered, God, how do we connect with you? How do we commune? What does it look like to form a friendship? Where do we go to pray? Where do we go to bring our sacrifices, which is such a part of our, our faith walk? And the answer to those questions ultimately became the book of Psalms, if you're remembering my message from a few weeks ago, where the person who compiled them strategically put them together so that they would create a new place, a literary temple, where the Israelites who'd returned from exile could go and meet with God. And that looked like them putting themselves back into the story of God and Israel, which is what the Psalms do, is they sort of lead you through the monarchy all the way to the time at present where they could go back into that story and remember God's faithfulness and see his character and experience his steadfast love and in that be able to actually connect with his heart, which is exactly what they were needing to do in that season. And as modern readers, we have the book of Psalms, but we realize that we're on the other side of Jesus, right? And Jesus is the place where we go to meet with God. He, it says in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the only way to God and the real truth and the real life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what Jesus does is he, he becomes the new temple, the new place where we go to meet with God, to connect with his heart, to have access to him 
to celebrate and enjoy the friendship that Jesus has restored us to with him. And so that doesn't mean that Psalms is suddenly irrelevant to us, because actually Jesus embodies the relational dynamic that we find in the Psalms, right? The way that the psalmist teaches us how to have friendship or how to engage in the access that God's given us, Jesus models to us through his whole life. And so the Psalms actually still serve as this beautiful guidebook for each one of us on what it looks like or how it looks to engage fully the access that God has given us through his son, Jesus. And so it's important for us to look at that overarching picture, which is actually what I want to do today, because I think there are times where we want intimacy with God, where we hunger for more of God, where we're curious about his will for our life, but we don't quite know how to connect or how to ask or, or what to do. And maybe we had a way that worked for a long time, but the season has shifted. And it just feels like God's bringing us in a new, new place and, and we don't know how to walk that part of the friendship yet. And Psalms gives us this beautiful grid or map or framework, whatever you want to call it, to learn over and over again through our lives how to connect with the heart of God. And we need that because that is what it means to be his friend. And so I just want to walk through it this morning. I'm going to pray. Holy Spirit, would you bring revelation to this book? And would you really tattoo it on our hearts the way that you want to engage with us, connect with us? Because we know that that's everything. So help us to see it. And then help us to be bold enough, courageous enough, take the risk to actually do it. Because we know that you have more for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So books one to three which cover the time of the monarchy and the destruction of Israel as far as the, you know, the historical storyline there. Um, I, I labeled those as honesty because I feel like that's exactly what the Lord is inviting us to in these first three books. And Perla covered it a couple weeks ago, and I don't want to rehash all of it. But the reality is most of these poems were written during a really difficult time in Israel's history. The monarchy was not great. There were a lot of kings that abused or misused their power. They drove the people away from God. They created false idols. Even in the southern nation of Judah, where Jerusalem was, it wasn't perfect. They had really good kings, and they, and they had really awful kings. And so most of the poems that were written, most of the psalms of this time, were laments. And the lament is really a, a song of pain or suffering or difficulty. It could be confusion or grief could be weight because they were experiencing foreign oppression or external difficulties and struggles. Um, it could be living under the weight of the consequences of our sin even, which we see a lot with David in these three books. Um, but the reality is, is it was a really hard time, and so it's manifested in really hard poems that we're reading here. And they're really raw. And the beauty of that is they give us the very clear understanding that God is not looking for us to come to him and say, I'm good, everything's fine. The first three books of the Psalms are an opportunity for us to see that God is inviting us to come to him truly exactly as we are, without a mask, without pretense, without expectation. He's not looking for this false sense of religion where we show up and we're like, you're really good, things are really good, I worship you, but instead, there's a space that becomes holy when we go to him with honesty and with vulnerability. When we approach him with the riskiness of saying, I'm mad at you, God, 
or I'm confused by what you're asking of me, or I'm really sad by what is happening in my life right now. Psalm 22 uh, is one of the many psalms that we read when David's running away because there's just chaos happening in his life. And he says, quite literally, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I call out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest or quiet. Many enemies like bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouths against me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted by anguish within me. David is so raw in this moment with God, so honest about how he's feeling. And it doesn't mean in his honesty that he doesn't love God, that he doesn't revere God, that he doesn't worship God, but it's indicative of the fact that honesty is essential to building intimacy, right? Think of your human relationships right now. Most of us start off with like a coffee date or getting ice cream. Johanna and I had dinner and ice cream. Um, it could even start around the water cooler at work. It starts off pretty low key, right? I hope none of you walk up to someone and you're like, these are my deepest, darkest secrets. Please tell me yours. Now we are friends. That would be really awkward. Some of you may. That's awkward. Um, but the reality is we start slowly because what we're doing is we're testing the other person, not in a bad way, but we're trying to discern their character and see if they're a trustworthy person. And as we discern that they're trustworthy, we give them a little bit more of ourselves, right? We stare a little bit more of our, our heart. We become a little bit more vulnerable. And if they continue to be trustworthy with that, we go a step further and a step further and a step further. And that's how intimacy is built. That's how relationships are built. That's how friendships go to the place of not just being an acquaintance, but somebody that you really keep in touch with no matter where you are around the globe. And the same is true with God. It's interesting that we think sometimes that we need to show up differently for him because he's God, right? We have to put on this, this appearance or this perspective that ultimately kind of takes our humanity out of our interaction with him. But the Lord created us to interact with him in our humanity. He says, I invite you to be yourself before me. I gave you the full scope of the emotions that you feel. I feel them too. As the creator of the universe, I know all of them. None of them are foreign to me. And so I invite you to meet me in them instead of running away or pretending that they don't exist when you approach me. And the moment that you do that, even as risky as it feels to be that vulnerable before the Lord, the moment that we do that, it begins to allow us to see and experience God in a way that is not just cursory or religious or like outside of because I think sometimes our experiences of God can be like we see him over there, but we're not really experiencing him. The moment that we move before him in intimacy, that experience comes up close. It begins to become real because it's, it's him interacting with us in our deepest, darkest moments and even in our best moments. Because it's not always pain that we have to go to him with. We can go to him with joy too. And so book four is this opportunity where the psalmist helps us to see how vulnerability and honesty open us up for encounter. It's Psalms 90 to 106, and it actually was written as a direct response to the severe pain that Israel was feeling during the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And so you would almost imagine that book four, after 
the destruction of their temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the fact that Book 4 now covers the time of exile would be a continuation of that same pain. At least that's what I would imagine. Circumstances have not gotten any better for Israel. One would say they've actually gotten worse. And yet there's a distinct shift here where they go from being primarily laments to primarily books of praise and worship to the Lord, which is kind of curious. Um, we see expressions of gratitude and trust and hope and joy and expectation. We see the people, the poets who wrote these psalms, expressing this kind of overwhelming certainty in God's sovereignty, meaning in his control over all things, and in his character, which is good. They keep honing in on God. You are faithful. You don't forget about me. You remember me. And it's an interesting and very clear shift because it, it says to us, that the psalmist, the person who compiled all of these together when, he, when they made this book, says when we go from being honest and vulnerable, when we take the risk of approaching God in exactly the way that we're feeling and who we are, then it moves us, it positions us, it postures us to be able to experience the goodness of God in a way that is life-changing, really. He says you can't taste and see the goodness of God without being real before him. Otherwise, you're just playing religion. You can say, God, you're so good, it's wonderful, and the inside of you is falling apart. And he says, unless you're willing to tell me what you're really feeling, you'll never get to experience me taking care of you, hearing you, seeing you, loving you, providing you, providing for you, protecting you. But when you take a step back and you own the pain, you own the sin, you repent, you show me exactly where you are, you give me permission to show up in your life as the creator of the universe and to experience me as the creator of the universe. I gave everybody, hopefully you got one, a copy of Psalm 103. It's so funny because this morning in prayer, Sean, you quite literally read this one out by memory. But I want you to hear the difference in the Psalms that Perla shared with us a couple weeks ago to where the psalmist begins to go. And what I'd like for you to do, you have a copy before you, there's pens in the seat back, but I would love for you to circle or underline or mark the parts of this psalm that hit your heart. If you need a copy, I have them extra here. Do we need copies? Thank you, Jim. I'll let you. Oh, you're good. Jim, no, it's just, I know, and everybody was here. Barb, thank you for passing them out before. I'll wait a moment. And that way, if you're online, you can grab your Bible or pull it up. It's easier if you have a paper copy in front of you, though. But I want you to see how Israel has moved from being so raw before the Lord to what begins to come out of their mouths and their hearts now as they have been in that place of vulnerability. So again, yeah, circle, mark, underline everything about the Lord that really stands out to you. And I'm only going to go through verse 13. It says, let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercy. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. He revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, 
slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. There is such a powerful shift when we see the honesty that David expressed before David to what happens when we allow God to draw near to us in our pain. We begin to see and taste and experience the character of the creator of the universe who sees us and hears us and redeems us and restores us and renews us back to himself. So often we want to be able to experience God but keep control over that experience. And so we set up a set of walls or expectations where God, you can only move in these parameters. I will only give you this much access to my heart or to this part of my life. And the moment we set up those walls, we're essentially saying, you're not actually welcome here. And it is not until we allow those to come down and be honest that he says, hey, I'm far greater than you ever could have imagined. I'm more beautiful than you ever could have thought. And I see you. I see you. And I will meet you exactly where you are because that is what I do as the creator of the universe. Between honesty and encounter, this is how we we experience the access to God that Jesus has given us through his death and rising. Right? He's given us access to heaven. We can come boldly before the throne. And I think a lot of us would like to learn how to be bold before God without actually being vulnerable before God. We want to be able to like, yeah, I can march into heaven and talk to him. But the reality is none of us are going to do that until we know that God is safe. And we're not going to know that God is safe until we've taken those steps of having to put ourselves in a place of learning to trust him. It's risky. It feels risky, I should say. Because we don't always understand the character of God when we start following him. We're learning him. And somehow we've gotten this message across that that shouldn't be the case. But God wants us to relate in our humanity, which means the relationship builds at a normal pace, right? We're not supposed to just be like, God, I follow you, and now I know everything about you. It's meant to be this dynamic where we grab his hand and we walk down the path and we learn that he is ongoingly faithful and consistent and trustworthy. And as we learn that, we give him more of ourself and we experience more of heaven. And we begin to learn, I really am a child of the king. I understand my identity as a daughter. And now I recognize that I can walk boldly into the throne room with you, God, and I can ask anything. And I don't necessarily mean I'm going to get exactly what I'm asking. You may not give me the answer I'm looking for. You may ask me to wait or to sit down. You may even rebuke me or discipline me because I'm being a little sassy. But the reality is I have permission to come before you fully and I realize that I'm safe in that and I'm loved in that. And so it just gives me the ability to lean into the access that God has given as we go through honesty and encounter. And the reality is, is this is what changes us as followers of Jesus. 
we read over and over again in the New Testament, Paul in particular, constantly is honing in, in on this idea of being transformed, thinking differently, and then living differently. And so often we think that that's a set of rules or guidelines or, or things that we somehow have to figure out, like there's an algorithm to that. And the reality is that algorithm is just simply going deeper in relationship with, with God. It's friendship. What transforms us isn't law. Oh, it's okay. It's not so bright now. It's not uh, figuring out and reading the Bible for hours every day. It's not, it's not sets of religion that change us. It's not us being in control and modifying our behavior and gripping so tight that we think God likes us now. What changes us is realizing in our honesty and vulnerability that we are deeply loved all the time. And we begin to operate from that place of being accepted and loved by God. And that's what transforms us. That's what breaks us free. And that's what book five covers. Wow, so bright. Book five is Psalms 107 to 150. And this covers the time when the exiles had gathered back home. And so, and it was likely that Psalms was actually compiled under the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so a lot of what we find in this last book doesn't make sense based on what's happening historically in the moment, right? If you remember the minor prophets, Ezra and Nehemiah, the people are still pretty despairing. They're still feeling pretty hopeless. They're still feeling really confused. God, you promised us all these things that were going to happen when we came home, but the temple's still destroyed. The walls are still torn down. Our enemies are still oppressing us. I don't think we're free yet. This, this doesn't feel any better than exile, except that we're back in our land. But we can't even do what we want while we're here. And so that's what's happening in the time. And yet the Psalms that, the, that are compiled for this season are, again, not laments. They're not Psalms of despair and hopelessness, but they move actually to being predominantly Psalms of ascent. And these are specifically Psalms that were written or compiled for the approach of worship. So these were things that they would have corporately come together to sing as they were going to celebrate God at the temple, as they were literally ascending the road, as they were going forward to the place where they would worship him. And so remember, the Psalms weren't written at the time that they were compiled. They were written all over and, and pulled from a variety of timelines. And so as we're reading these ones in book number five, it's this revelation from the psalmist, he says, when you're honest with the Lord and vulnerable, you get to taste and see his goodness, and it changes the way that you live. It allows you to feel a stability, a consistency, a steadfastness. It allows your feet to be anchored regardless of what your circumstances look like. It allows you to look and live like Jesus did, where even in his anguish in Gethsemane or in the garden before he goes to Gethsemane, where he's it quite literally is, is blood and, uh, and sweat and he's just raw before the Lord saying, if there's any other way to save humanity, can we figure it out right now? Because I know what's about to come. And yet we don't hear what God says back in that time of prayer with Jesus. We don't know what he said to him, but what we do know is Jesus rose up from that garden and he proceeded through the cross and he proceeded through the grave to coming back to life on Sunday morning. And through that whole thing, there was a stability, there was a humility, there was a peace about him. We want to know how to live with that kind of peace. We need that kind of peace because the world's always going to be changing and it's always going to be challenging. And so if we simply are trying to relate to God through this tier of religion or external controls, we're never actually going to be anchored, and our faith is constantly going to feel like we're going up and down, up and down, up and down. Jesus says, if you want 
to live the way that I live. This is the pathway to it. And so by the time we get to book five, we realize that the people aren't free from struggle. The people's circumstances aren't simple and easy. They have conflict with their family. They've got conflict outside the walls of their city. They're still enslaved to various struggles and addictions. But they're free to be stable in the Lord within all of that because they have tasted his goodness and they recognize their identity in him. And that's what makes the end of Psalms so powerful. We start in this place of despair and the end of Psalms are five, it's five Psalms that finish out the book. Hallelujah. It was literally praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. And all five of those Psalms are entirely focused on God's goodness. They're a picture of what happens when our eyes reorient to him, when our life quite literally becomes centered on God. It changes us. It changes the way we see and engage with the world when we are truly anchored in his goodness. Psalm 146 says, praise the Lord. Let all that I am praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God with my dying breath. Don't put your confidence in powerful people. There's no help for you there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth and all their plans die with them. But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord, their God. Psalms is this journey, really, of what it looks like for us again and again and again in our lives to go through things that are challenging and to recognize, like, we have to bring all of that to the Lord. And when we bring it to him, we get to taste and experience his goodness and his steadfast love. And that changes us. It transforms us. It empowers us to live as people who are anchored. That's the word I kept getting for this last book of Psalms is being anchored so that life does not get to control you or dominate you, but you know no matter what's going on around you, I have perfect peace because the joy of the Lord is my strength. I keep company with the creator of the universe. So all this stuff that's going on around me pales in comparison to the beauty and the glory that I live in because I'm with him. Think about that for a moment. I know we all have things in our lives that are unsettled or unfinished. That's normal. That's going to happen till the day that we die. There are going to be things that are just outside of our control. And we are forced to live through them. And we may live through them feeling completely broken down and alone and isolated. Pain tends to do that to us, where we think God has suddenly forgotten us. And so it's imperative that we listen to the words of the psalmist, that we listen to the words of the New Testament. Kat, I wrote it down because I was just like, yes, that is exactly it. 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We read it over and over and over in the scriptures that this is the way to move forward with the, with the Father. And yet, are we doing it? Are we practicing that rawness? Are we practicing vulnerability so that we can taste and see his goodness? It doesn't always have to be really dark. It doesn't. I mean, so much of the beginning of Psalms really is dark, and I think we can connect that because it's harder. But last night, and then we'll move into ministry time, but I want to share this story Last night was a tough night. Tim's been working a lot of nights, and we've got three children, and the older two still need a lot of help, like getting ready for bed. Obviously, you have to brush their teeth and help them get dressed. And then this guy, we're trying to sleep train him and get him ready to like be compliant and happy and sleep on his own, right? 
And so when I'm doing it solo, which happens a bit, it, it's a little stressful. And so I just started asking the Holy Spirit for help because I don't want to be uh, disengaged from my older two. I don't want to be disengaged from my little one. I don't want to let him cry. And so it was just this honesty of like, God, I can't do it by myself. I need your help. Like I literally need your real physical, tangible help. Can you show up in the room when I have to go take care of the baby and love on my older boys and then we can flip. Like if Tim's not here, can you be my Tim, right? Can you be that other person in the room? And I have never experienced the grace of God so powerfully in our home until I was able to just ask him that and acknowledge that. And it quite literally feels like the Holy Spirit, we switch. So like I was rocking him last night and the boys, I said, I will come back and finish your story, but I just need you guys to hang out for a few minutes while I take care of Asher. And I felt like the Holy Spirit was sitting in the room playing with them. And I know he was. Jesus is always with us. I knew he was taking care of them. They were so happy. They didn't argue. That's how I knew God was there. They were alone for 10 minutes and there was no arguing. They were just totally at peace, playing and looking out the window. Nothing got broken. And then I had to put him down and switch. And I was like, all right, I'm going to like let you rock the baby while I engage with my two older boys. And ultimately, I ended up having to pick up Asher because he just was not willing to be settled down. But it changed my perspective in that moment and it took my stress away because I realized God was with me. And because I wasn't so stressed, what happened was I went in to tuck Bowen and then I went to Judah. But as I was chatting with Bowen, I had him in my arms. We just started talking about God and we were just, we were praying like we do at the end of the day. And I, I just said to Bo, I'm like, I, I wonder what God does when he's all together and they're just hanging out. Like, what do they do for fun? What does the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do for fun? And he's like, well, mommy, just ask him. And I was like, that's okay. Yeah, let's just ask him, right? Like he wants to tell us about himself. He wants to relate to us in our humanity. And so we're like, what do you like to do? And we both paused and waited for God to tell us. And I felt like I had this picture of them hanging out around a table together, probably having coffee. I just had the sense of them enjoying each other in like a kitchen dynamic, right? With this beautiful window behind them. And Bo's like, oh, that's nice, Mommy. I had a picture of them playing with water guns and water balloons together and having fun. And I was like, honestly, Bo, I think we miss out on how much fun God is. I honestly think that we do not engage with him in a way where we see how much he likes to play. He was creative. He created aardvarks and sunflowers and all of these incredible parts of creation because our God is fun but unless we take the time to pause and slow down and just say, I want to know you, we won't get that from him. Because he doesn't force himself in. He waits for us to say, do you want to trust me with your heart? Because I would love to show you who I am. And he's not, somebody said this earlier, maybe it was in prayer. He's not asking us to do what he didn't do first, right? Jesus came as a baby, which was the most vulnerable thing God, of, the creator of the universe, could do. God is vulnerable with us before he ever asks us to be vulnerable with him. And so as we move through Psalms, I would really challenge you not to read it like a cookbook and pick and choose occasionally, but to try and read it from beginning to end. And as you're doing that, allow it to just guide your own walk with him and say, God, I need to learn how to trust you here. And so I'm going to take the steps of faith and be bold like David was and, and be honest about how I'm feeling right now, good or bad. And I'm going to trust that you're going to encounter, I'm going to encounter you when I do that. That you're going to show me you're playing water guns with your 
with each other. Or you're going to show me the kitchen table, and you're going to invite me to that table. And it's going to change the way that I live for the better. It's so simple, but so intentional. The psalmist, the person who compiled all of these poems together was so clear. Do not miss out on the intimacy that is afforded to you as a follower of the king. That's where life happens. Do you want to stand up? We'll move into ministry time. I just, he's so good. He's so good. I'm having this picture of him playing with water balloons now, and I just, it delights. God, you are so kind and faithful to us. There are parts of your heart that we have not actually tasted and seen yet. But you want to bring us there. Help us to let go of our fear or our false expectations of what things should feel like or be like as your follower and actually see that we can approach you exactly as we are. And I just want to give you space to, well, to do what I did last night, to do what, what we all need to be doing, which is just to ask him to be honest about where we maybe are struggling this morning and haven't invited him to practically move. And then let him, just wait on him and let him work. So right now, put before him, it could be a situation, it could be a person, it could be a concern, whatever it is, I just want to invite you to ask God, let him know how you're feeling about it, and then ask him to show up.